Chapter Forty Two of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. An old acquaintance of Oliver's, exhibiting decided marks of genius, becomes a public character in the metropolis. Upon the night when Nancy, having lulled Mr. Sykes to sleep, hurried on her self-imposed mission to Rose Maylie, there advanced towards London by the Great North Road two persons upon whom it is expedient that this history should bestow some attention. They were a man and woman, or perhaps they would be better described as a male and female, for the former was one of those long-limbed, knock-kneed, shambling, bony people to whom it is difficult to assign any precise age, looking as they do when they are yet boys like undergrown men, and when they are almost men like overgrown boys. The woman was young, but of a robust and hardy make, as she need have been to bear the weight of the heavy bundle which was strapped to her back. Her companion was not encumbered with much luggage, as there merely dangled from a stick which he carried over his shoulder a small parcel, wrapped in a common handkerchief, and apparently light enough. This circumstance, added to the length of his legs, which were of unusual extent, enabled him with much ease to keep some half-dozen paces in advance of his companion, to whom he occasionally turned with an impatient jerk of the head, as if reproaching her tardiness, and urging her to greater exertion. Thus they had toiled along the dusty road, taking little heed of any object within sight, save when they stepped aside to allow a wider passage for the mail-coaches which were whirling out of town, until they passed through Highgate Archway, when the foremost traveller stopped and called impatiently to his companion, "'Come on, can't you? What a lazy bones you are, Charlotte!' "'It's a heavy load, I can tell you,' said the female, coming up, almost breathless with fatigue. Eddie. "'What are you talking about? What are you made for?' rejoined the male traveller, changing his own little bundle as he spoke to the other shoulder. "'Oh, there you are, resting again. Well, if it ain't enough to tire anybody's patience out, I don't know what is.' "'Is it much farther?' asked the woman, resting herself against the bank, and looking up with a perspiration streaming from her face. "'Much further. You're as good as there,' said the long-legged tramper, pointing out before him. "'Look there.' "'Those are the lights of London.' "'They're a good two mile off, at least,' said the woman despondingly. "'Never mind whether they're two mile off, or twenty, said Noah Claypole, for it was he. "'But get up and come on, or I'll kick you, and so I'll give you notice.' As Noah's nose grew redder with anger, and as he crossed the road while speaking as if fully prepared to put his threat into execution, the woman rose without any further remark, and trudged onward by his side. "'Where do you mean to stop for the night, Noah?' she asked, after they had walked a few hundred yards. "'How should I know?' replied Noah, whose temper had been considerably impaired by walking. "'Near, I hope,' said Charlotte. "'No, not near,' replied Mr. Claypole. "'There, not near, so don't think it.' "'Why not?' "'When I tell you that I don't mean to do a thing, that's enough, without any why or because either,' replied Mr. Claypole, with dignity. "'Well, you didn't be so cross,' said his companion. "'A pretty thing it would be, wouldn't it, to go and stop at the very first public-house outside the town, so the sowbury, if he came up after us, might poke in his old nose, and have us taken back in a cart with handcuffs on?' said Mr. Claypole, in a jeering tone. "'Now, I shall go and lose myself among the narrowest streets I can find, and not stop till we come to the very out-of-the-wayest house I can set eyes on. God, you may thank your stars I've got ahead.' For if you hadn't gone at first the wrong road o' purpose, and come back across country, you'd have been locked up hard and fast a week ago, my lady. 
and save your right for being a fool i know i ain't as cunning as you are replied charlotte but don't put all the blame on me and say i should have been locked up you would have been if i had been anyway you took the money from the till you know you did said mr claypole i took it for you now dear rejoined charlotte did i keep it asked mr claypole no you trusted in me and let me carry it like a dear and so you are said the lady chucking him under the chin and drawing her arm through his this was indeed the case but as it was not mr claypole's habit to repose a blind and foolish confidence in anybody it should be observed in justice to that gentleman that he had trusted charlotte to this extent in order that if they were pursued the money might be found on her which would leave him an opportunity of asserting his innocence of any theft and would greatly facilitate his chances of escape of course he entered at this juncture into no explanation of his motives and they walked on very lovingly together in pursuance of this cautious plan mr claypole went on without halting until he arrived at the angel at islington where he wisely judged from the crowd of passengers and numbers of vehicles that london began in earnest just pausing to observe which appeared the most crowded streets and consequently the most to be avoided he crossed into st john's road and was soon deep in the obscurity of the intricate and dirty ways which lying between gray's inn lane and smithfield render that part of the town one of the lowest and worst that improvement has left in the midst of london through these streets noah claypole walked dragging charlotte after him now stepping into the kennel to embrace at a glance the whole external character of some small public-house now jogging on again as some fancied appearance induced him to believe it too public for his purpose at length he stopped in front of one more humble in appearance and more dirty than any he had yet seen and having crossed over and surveyed it from the opposite pavement graciously announced his intention of putting up there for the night so give us the bundle said noah unstrapping it from the woman's shoulders and slinging it over his own and don't you speak except when you're spoke to what's the name of the house t h r three what cripples said charlotte three cripples repeated noah a very good sign too now then keep close at my heels and come along with these injunctions he pushed the rattling door with his shoulder and entered the house followed by his companion there was nobody in the bar but a young jew who with his two elbows on the counter was reading a dirty newspaper he stared very hard at noah and noah stared very hard at him if noah had been attired in his charity boy's dress there might have been some reason for the jew opening his eyes so wide but as he had discarded the coat and badge and wore a short smock-frock over his leathers there seemed no particular reason for his appearance exciting so much attention in a public-house is this the three cripples asked noah that's the day of this house replied the jew a gentleman we met on the road coming up from the country recommended us here said noah nudging charlotte perhaps to call her attention to this most ingenious device for attracting respect and perhaps to warn her to betray no surprise we want to sleep here to-night i'm not certain you cad said barney who was the attendant sprite but i'll inquire show us the tap and give us a bit of cold meat and a drop of beer while you're inquiring will you said noah barney complied by ushering them into a small back room and setting the required viands before them having done which he informed the travellers that they could be lodged that night and left the amiable couple to their refreshment 
Now this back room was immediately behind the bar, and some steps lower, so that any person connected with the house, undrawing a small curtain which concealed a single pane of glass, fixed in the wall of the last-named apartment, about five feet from its flooring, could not only look down upon any guests in the back room without any great hazard of being observed, the glass being in a dark angle of the wall, between which and a large upright beam the observer had to thrust himself, but could, by applying his ear to the partition, ascertain with tolerable distinctness their subject of conversation. The landlord of the house had not withdrawn his eye from this place of espial for five minutes, and Barney had only just returned from making the communication above related, when Fagin, in the course of his evening's business, came into the bar to inquire after some of his young pupils. "'Hush!' said Barney. "'Strangers in the next room!' "'Strangers?' repeated the old man in a whisper. "'Ah! And Rubbuds, too,' added Barney. "'From the country!' but something in your way or unbestaked. Fagin appeared to receive this communication with great interest. Mounting a stool, he cautiously applied his eye to the pane of glass, from which secret post he could see Mr. Claypole taking cold beef from the dish, and porter from the pot, and administering homeopathic doses of both to Charlotte, who sat patiently by, eating and drinking at his pleasure. "'Aha!' he whispered, looking round to Barney. "'I like that fellow's looks!' He'd be of use to us. He knows how to train the girl already. Don't make as much noise as a mouse, my dear, and let me hear him talk. Let me hear him." He again applied his eye to the glass, and turning his ear to the partition, listened attentively, with a subtle and eager look upon his face that might have appertained to some old goblin. "'So I mean to be a gentleman,' said Mr. Claypole, kicking out his legs and continuing a conversation, the commencement of which Fagin had arrived too late to hear. "'No more jolly old coffin, Charlotte, but a gentleman's life for me, and if you like, you should be a lady.' "'I should like that well enough, dear,' replied Charlotte, "'but tills ain't to be emptied every day, and people to get cleared off after it.' "'Tills be blowed,' said Mr. Claypole. "'There's more things beside tills to be emptied.' "'What do you mean?' asked his companion. Pockets, women's ridicules, houses, mail coaches, banks, said Mr. Claypole, rising with the porter. But you can't do all that, dear, said Charlotte. I shall look out to get into company with them as can, replied Noah. They'll be able to make us useful some way or another. Why, you yourself are worth fifty women. I never see such a precious sly and deceitful creature as you can be when I let you. Law, how nice it is to hear you say so exclaimed Charlotte, imprinting a kiss upon his ugly face. "'There, that'll do. Don't you be too affectionate in case I'm cross with you,' said Noah, disengaging himself with great gravity. "'I should like to be the captain of some band, and have the whooping of them and following them about, unbeknownst to them. That would suit me, if there was good profit, and if we could only get in with some gentleman of this sort. I say it would be cheap at that twenty-pound note you've got, especially as we don't very well know how to get rid of it ourselves.' After expressing this opinion, Mr. Claypole looked into the porter-pot with an aspect of deep wisdom, and having well shaken its contents, nodded condescendingly to Charlotte, and took a draught, wherewith he appeared greatly refreshed. He was meditating another when the sudden opening of the door and the appearance of a stranger interrupted him. The stranger was Mr. Fagin, and very amiable he looked, and a very low bow he made as he advanced, and setting himself down at the nearest table, ordered something to drink from the grinning Barney. "'A pleasant night, sir, 
but cool for the time of year said fagin rubbing his hands from the country i see sir how do you see that asked noah claypole we have not so much dust as that in london replied fagin pointing from noah's shoes to those of his companion and from them to the two bundles you're a sharp fellow said noah <laughs> only hear that charlotte why one need be sharp in this town my dear replied the jew sinking his voice into a confidential whisper and that's the truth fagin followed up this remark by striking the side of his nose with his right forefinger a gesture which noah attempted to imitate though not with complete success in consequence of his own nose not being large enough for the purpose however mr fagin seemed to interpret the endeavour as expressing a perfect coincidence with his opinion and put about the liquor which barney reappeared with in a very friendly manner good stuff that observed mr claypole smacking his lips dear said fagin a man need be always emptying a till a pocket or a woman's reticule or a house or a mail coach or a bank if he drinks it regularly mr claypole no sooner heard this extract from his own remarks than he fell back in his chair and looked from the jew to charlotte with a countenance of ashy paleness and excessive terror don't mind me my dear said fagin drawing his chair close <laughs> how lucky it was it was only me that heard you by chance it was very lucky it was only me i didn't take it stammered noah no longer stretching out his legs like an independent gentleman but coiling them up as well as he could under his chair it was all her doing you've got it now charlotte you know you have no matter who's got it or who did it my dear replied fagin glancing nevertheless with a hawk's eye at the girl and at the two bundles i'm in that way myself and i like you for it in what way asked mr claypole a little recovering in that way of business rejoined fagin and so are the people of the house you've hit the right nail upon the head and you're as safe here as you could be there is not a safer place in all this town than is the cripples that is when i like to make it so and i have taken a fancy to you and the young woman so i've said the word and you may make your minds easy noah claypole's mind might have been at ease after this assurance but his body certainly was not for he shuffled and writhed about into various uncouth positions eyeing his new friend meanwhile with mingled fear and suspicion i'll tell you more said fagin after he had reassured the girl by dint of friendly nods and muttered encouragements i've got a friend that i think can gratify your darling wish and put you in the right way where you can take whatever department of the business you think will suit you best at first and be taught all the others you speak as if you were in earnest replied noah what advantage would it be to me to be anything else inquired fagin shrugging his shoulders here let me have a word with you outside there's no occasion to trouble ourselves to move said noah getting his legs by gradual degrees abroad again she'll take the luggage upstairs the while charlotte see to them bundles this mandate which had been delivered with great majesty was obeyed without the slightest demur and charlotte made the best of her way off with the packages while noah held the door open and watched her out she's kept tolerably well under ain't she he asked as he resumed his seat in the tone of a keeper who had tamed some wild animal quite perfect rejoined fagin clapping him on the shoulder you're a genius my dear why i suppose if i wasn't i shouldn't be here 
replied Noah. But I say, she'll be back if you lose time. Now, what do you think, said Fagin, if you were to like my friend, could you do better than join him? Is he in a good way of business? That's where it is, responded Noah, winking one of his little eyes. The top of the tree employs a power of hands, has the very best society in the profession. Regular town maiders? asked Mr. Claypole. Not a countryman among them, and I don't think he'd take you even on my recommendation if he didn't run rather short of assistance just now, replied Fagin. Should I have to hand over? said Noah, slapping his breeches pocket. It couldn't possibly be done without, replied Fagin in a most decided manner. Twenty pound, though. It's a lot of money. Not when it's in a note you can't get rid of, retorted Fagin. Number and date taken, I suppose. Payment stopped at the bank. Ah, it's not worth much to him. It'll have to go abroad, and he couldn't sell it for a great deal in the market. When could I see him? asked Noah doubtfully. Tomorrow morning. Where? Here. Hm, said Noah. What's the wages? Live like a gentleman, board and lodgings, pipes and spirits free. Half of all you earn, and half of all the young woman earns, replied Mr. Fagin. Whether Noah Claypole, whose rapacity was none of the least comprehensive, would have acceded even to these glowing terms had he been a perfectly free agent is very doubtful. But as he recollected that, in the event of his refusal, it was in the power of his new acquaintance to give him up to justice immediately, and more unlikely things had come to pass, he gradually relented and said that he thought that would suit him. "'But you see,' observed Noah, "'as she'll be able to do a good deal, I should like to take something very light.' "'A little fancy work,' suggested Fagin. "'Ah, something of that sort,' replied Noah. "'What do you think would suit me now?' Something not too trying for my strength, and not very dangerous, you know. That's the sort of thing. I heard you talk of something in the spy way upon the others, my dear, said Fagin. My friend wants somebody who could do that well, very much. Why, I did mention that, and I shouldn't mind turning my hand to it sometimes, rejoined Mr. Claypole slowly. But it wouldn't pay by itself, you know. That's true observed the Jew, ruminating, or pretending to ruminate. Now, it might not. What do you think, then? asked Noah, anxiously regarding him. Something in a sneaking way, where it was pretty sure work, and not much more risk than being at home. What do you think of the old ladies? asked Fagin. There's a good deal of money made in snatching their bags and parcels, and running round the corner. Don't they holler out a good deal, and scratch sometimes? asked Noah, shaking his head. I don't think that would answer my purpose. Enter any other line open. Stop, said Fagin, laying his hand on Noah's knee. The kitchen lay. What's that? demanded Mr. Claypole. The kitchen lay, my dear, said Fagin, is the young children that sent on errands by their mothers, with sixpences and shillings, and the lay is just to take their money away. They've always got it ready in their hands, then knock em into the kennel and walk off very slow, as if there were nothing else the matter but a child fallen down and hurt itself. Ha, 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 roared Mr. Claypole, kicking up his legs in ecstasy. Lord, that's the very thing. To be sure it is, replied Fagin. And you can have a few good beats chalked out in Camden Town and Battle Bridge, and neighbourhoods like that, with it always going errands. 
and you can upset as many kitchens as you want any hour in the day. <laughs> With this Fagin poked Mr. Claypole in the side, and they joined in a burst of laughter both long and loud. "'Well, that's all right,' said Noah, when he had recovered himself and Charlotte had returned. "'What time tomorrow shall we say?' "'Will ten do?' asked Fagin, adding, as Mr. Claypole nodded assent, "'What name shall I tell my good friend?' "'Mr. Bolter,' replied Noah, who had prepared himself for such emergency. "'Mr. Morris Bolter. This is Mrs. Bolter.' "'Mrs. Bolter's humble servant,' said Fagin, bowing with grotesque politeness. "'I hope I shall know her better very shortly.' "'Do you hear the gentleman, Charlotte?' thundered Mr. Claypole. "'Yes, Noah, dear.' replied Mrs. Bolter, extending her hand. "'She calls me Noah as a sort of fond way of talking,' said Mr. Morris Bolter, late Claypole, turning to Fagin. "'You understand?' "'Oh, yes, I understand. Perfectly,' replied Fagin, telling the truth for once. "'Good night. Good night.' With many adieus and good wishes Mr. Fagin went his way. Noah Claypole, bespeaking his good lady's attention, proceeded to enlighten her relative to the arrangements he had made, with all that haughtiness and air of superiority becoming not only to a member of the sterner sex, but a gentleman who appreciated the dignity of a special appointment on the kitchen lay, in London and its vicinity. End of chapter 42 Chapter 43 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens Wherein is shown how the artful dodger got into trouble. "'And so it was you that was your own friend, was it?' asked Mr. Claypole, otherwise Bolter, when, by virtue of the compact entered into between them, he had removed next day to Fagin's house. "'Cut! I thought as much last night's.' "'Every man's his own friend, my dear,' replied Fagin, with his most insinuating grin. "'He hasn't as good a one as himself anywhere.' "'Except sometimes.' replied Morris Bolter, assuming the air of a man of the world. Some people are nobody's enemies but their own, you know. Don't believe that, said Fagin. When a man's his own enemy, it's only because he's too much his own friend, not because he's careful for everybody but himself. Puh, puh, there ain't such a thing in nature. There oughtn't to be, if there is, replied Mr. Bolter. That stands to reason. Some conjurers say that number three is the magic number, and some say number seven. It's neither, my friend, neither. It's number one. Ha <laughs> ha! cried Mr. Bolter. Number one forever? In a little community like ours, my dear, said Fagin, who felt it necessary to qualify this position. We have a general number one. That is, you can't consider yourself as number one without considering me as the same, and all the other young people. Now oh, the devil! exclaimed Mr. Bolter. You see, pursued Fagin, affecting to disregard this interruption. We are so mixed up together, and identified in our interests, that it must be so. For instance, it is your object to take care of number one, meaning yourself. Certainly, replied Mr. Bolter. You're about right there. Well, you can't take care of yourself, number one, without taking care of me, number one. Number two, you mean? replied Mr. Bolter, who was largely endowed with the quality of selfishness. "'No, I don't,' retorted Fagin. "'I'm of the same importance to you as you are to yourself.' "'Oh, say,' interrupted Mr. Bolter, "'you're a very nice man, and I'm very fond of you, but we ain't quite so thick together as all that comes to.' 
"'Only think,' said Fagin, shrugging his shoulders and stretching out his hands. "'Only consider. You've done what's a very pretty thing, and what I love you for doing, but what at the same time would put the cravat about your throat, that's so very easily tied and so very difficult to unloose. In plain English, the halter.' Mr. Bolter put his hand to his neckerchief, as if he felt it inconveniently tight, and murmured an assent, qualified in tone but not in substance. "'The gallows,' continued Fagin, "'the gallows, my dear, is an ugly finger-post, which points out a very short and sharp turning, that has stopped many a bold fellow's career in the broad highway. To keep in the easy road, and keep it at a distance, is object number one with you.' "'Of course it is,' replied Mr. Bolter. What do you talk about such things for? Only to show you my meaning clearly, said the Jew, raising his eyebrows. To be able to do that you depend upon me. To keep my little business all snug, I depend on you. The first is your number one, the second my number one. The more you value your number one, the more careful you must be of mine. So we come at last to what I told you at first, that a regard for number one holds us all together and must do so, unless we would all go to pieces in company. "'That's true,' rejoined Mr. Bolter thoughtfully. "'Oh, you're a cunning old codger!' Mr. Fagin saw with delight that this tribute to his power was no mere compliment, but that he had really impressed his recruit with a sense of his wily genius, which it was most important that he should entertain in the outset of their acquaintance. To strengthen an impression so desirable and useful, he followed up the blow by acquainting him in some detail with the magnitude and extent of his operations, blending truth and fiction together as best served his purpose, and bringing both to bear with so much art that Mr. Bolter's respect visibly increased, and became tempered at the same time with a degree of wholesome fear, which it was highly desirable to awaken. "'It's this mutual trust that we have in each other that consoles me under heavy losses,' said Fagin. "'My best hand was taken from me yesterday morning.' "'You don't mean to say he died?' cried Mr. Bolter. "'No, no,' replied Fagin. "'Not so bad as that. Not quite so bad.' "'What? I suppose he was—' "'Wanted,' interposed Fagin. "'Yes, he was wanted.' "'Very particular?' inquired Mr. Bolter. "'No.' replied Fagin. Not very. He was charged with attempting to pick a pocket, and they found a silver snuff-box on him. His own, my dear, his own, for he took snuff himself, and was very fond of it. They remanded him till to-day, for they thought they knew the owner. Ah, he was worth fifty boxes, and I'd give the price of as many to have him back. You should have known the dodger, my dear. You should have known the dodger. Well, but I shall know him, I hope. Don't you think so? said Mr. Bolter. "'I'm doubtful about it,' replied Fagin, with a sigh. "'If they don't get any fresh evidence, it'll only be a summary conviction, and we shall have him back again after six weeks or so. But if they do, it's a case of lagging. They know what a clever lad he is. He'll be a lifer. They'll make the artful nothing less than a lifer.' "'What do you mean by a lagging and a lifer?' demanded Mr. Bolter. "'What's the good of talking in that way to me? Why don't you speak so as I can understand you?' Fagin was about to translate these mysterious expressions into the vulgar tongue, and being interpreted Mr. Bolter would have been informed that they represented the combination of words transportation for life, when the dialogue was cut short by the entry of Master Bates, with his hands in his breeches pockets and his face twisted into a look of semi-comical woe. 
"'He's all up, Fagin,' said Charlie, when he and his new companion had been made known to each other. "'What do you mean?' "'They found the gentleman as owns the box. Two or three mores are coming to identify him, and the artful's booked for the passage out,' replied Master Bates. "'I must have a full suit of mourning, Fagin, and a hat-band to wizard him in, afore he sets out upon his travels. To think of it, Jack Dawkins, Lummy Jack, the Dodger, the artful Dodger, going abroad for a common two-penny-penny sneeze-box.' I never thought he'd have done it under a gold watch chain and seals at the lowest. Oh, why didn't he rob some rich old gentleman of all his valuables, and go out as a gentleman, not like a common prig, without no honour, no glory? With this expression of feeling for his unfortunate friend, Master Bates sat himself on the nearest chair with an aspect of chagrin and despondency. What do you talk about as having neither honour nor glory for? exclaimed Fagin, darting an angry look at his pupil. Wasn't he always the top soil among you all? Is there one of you that could touch him or come near him on any sense, eh? Not one, replied Master Bates, in a voice rendered husky by regret. Not one. Then what do you talk of? replied Fagin angrily. What are you blubbering for? Cause it isn't on the record, is it? said Charlie, chafed into perfect defiance of his venerable friend by the current of his regrets. Cause it ain't come out in the indictment. "'Cause nobody'll ever know half of what he was. "'How will he stand in the Newgate calendar? "'Perhaps not be there at all. "'Oh, my eye, my eye, what a blow it is!' <laughs> cried Fagin, extending his right hand, and turning to Mr. Bolter in a fit of chuckling, which shook him as though he had the palsy. "'See what pride they take in their profession, my dear. "'Ain't it beautiful?' Mr. Bolter nodded assent, and Fagin, after contemplating the grief of Charlie Bates for some seconds with evident satisfaction, stepped up to that young gentleman and patted him on the shoulder. "'Never mind, Charlie,' said Fagin soothingly. "'It'll come out. It'll be sure to come out. They all know what a clever lad he was. He'd show it himself, and not disgrace his old pals and teachers. Think how young he is, too. What a distinction, Charlie, to be lagged at his time of life.' "'Well, it is an honour, that is,' said Charlie, a little consoled. "'He shall have all he wants,' continued the Jew. "'He shall be kept in the stone jug, Charlie, like a gentleman, like a gentleman, with his beer every day, and money in his pocket to pitch and toss with if he can't spend it.' "'Now, shall he, though?' cried Charlie Bates. "'Aye, that he shall,' replied Fagin. "'And we'll have a big wig, Charlie, one that's got the greatest gift of the gab, to carry on his defence.' and he'll make a perfect speech for himself too if he likes and we'll read it all in the papers artful dodger shrieks of laughter here the court was convulsed eh charlie eh ha 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 laughed master bates what a laugh that would be wouldn't it fagin i say how the artful would bother them wouldn't he would cried fagin he shall he will ah to be sure so he will repeated charlie rubbing his hands i think i see him now cried the Jew, bending his eyes upon his pupil. "'So do I!' cried Charlie Bates. "'Ha! So do I! I see it all afore me! Upon my soul I do, Fagin! What a game! What a regular game! All the big wigs trying to look solemn, and Jack Dawkins addressing of him as intimate and comfortable as if he was the judge's own son, making a speech after dinner!' <laughs> in fact mr fagin had so well humoured his young friend's eccentric disposition that master bates who had at first been disposed to consider the imprisoned dodger rather in the light of a victim now looked upon him as the chief actor in a scene of most uncommon and exquisite humour 
and felt quite impatient for the arrival of the time when his old companion should have so favourable an opportunity of displaying his abilities. "'We must know how he gets on to-day by some handy means or other,' said Fagin. "'Let me think.' "'Shall I go?' asked Charlie. "'Not for the world,' replied Fagin. "'Are you mad, my dear, stark mad, that you'd walk into the very place where—' "'Now, Charlie, now, one is enough to lose at a time.' "'You don't mean to go yourself, I suppose,' said Charlie, with a humorous leer. "'That wouldn't quite fit,' replied Fagin, shaking his head. "'Then why don't you send this new cove?' asked Master Bates, laying his hand on Noah's arm. "'Nobody knows him.' "'Why, if he didn't mind,' observed Fagin. "'Mind?' interposed Charlie. "'What should he have to mind?' "'Really nothing, my dear,' said Fagin, turning to Mr. Bolter. "'Really nothing.' Oh, I dare say about that, you know, observed Noah, backing towards the door and shaking his head with a kind of sober alarm. Now, now, none of that. It's not my department, that ain't. What department has he got, Fagin? inquired Master Bates, surveying Noah's lank form with much disgust. The cutting away when there's anything wrong, and the eating of all the whittles when there's everything right. Is that his branch? Never mind, retorted Mr. Bolter. And don't you take liberties with your superiors, little boy, or you'll find yourself in the wrong shop. Master Bates laughed so vehemently at this magnificent threat that it was some time before Fagin could interpose and represent to Mr. Boulder that he incurred no possible danger in visiting the police office, that, inasmuch as no account of the little affair in which he had engaged, nor any description of his person, had yet been forwarded to the metropolis, it was very probable that he was not even suspected of having resorted to it for shelter, and that, if he were properly disguised, it would be as safe a spot for him to visit as any in London, inasmuch as it would be, of all places, the very last to which he could be supposed likely to resort of his own free will. Persuaded, in part by these representations, but overborne in a much greater degree by his fear of Fagin, Mr. Bolter at length consented, with a very bad grace, to undertake the expedition. By Fagin's directions he immediately substituted for his own attire a wagoner's frock, velveteen breeches, and leather leggings all of which articles the Jew had at hand. He was likewise furnished with a felt hat well garnished with turnpike tickets and a carter's whip. Thus equipped he was to saunter into the office, as some country fellow from Covent Garden Market might be supposed to do, for the gratification of his curiosity, and as he was as awkward, ungainly, and raw-boned a fellow as need be, Mr. Fagin had no fear but that he would look the part to perfection. These arrangements completed, he was informed of the necessary signs and tokens by which to recognise the artful dodger, and was conveyed by Master Bates through dark and winding ways to within a very short distance of Bow Street. Having described the precise situation of the office, and accompanied it with copious directions, how he was to walk straight up the passage, and when he got into the yard take the door up the steps on the right-hand side, and pull off his hat as he went into the room, Charlie Bates bade him hurry on alone, and promised to bide his return on the spot of their parting. Noah Claypole, or Morris Bolter, as the reader pleases, punctually followed the directions he had received, which, Master Bates being pretty well acquainted with the locality, were so exact that he was able to gain the magisterial presence without asking any question or meeting with any interruption by the way. He found himself jostled among a crowd of people, chiefly women, who were huddled together in a dirty, frowsy room at the upper end of which was a raised platform railed off from the rest, with a dock for the prisoners on the left hand against the wall, a box for the witnesses in the middle, and a desk for the magistrates on the right. 
the awful locality last named being screened off by a partition which concealed the bench from the common gaze and left the vulgar to imagine if they could the full majesty of justice there were only a couple of women in the dock who were nodding to their admiring friends while the clerk read some depositions to a couple of policemen and a man in plain clothes who leant over the table a jailer stood reclining against the dock rail tapping his nose listlessly with a large key except when he repressed an undue tendency to conversation among the idlers by proclaiming silence or looked sternly up to bid some woman take that baby out when the gravity of justice was disturbed by feeble cries half smothered in the mother's shawl from some meagre infant the room smelt close and unwholesome the walls were dirt discoloured and the ceiling blackened there was an old smoky bust over the mantel-shelf and a dusty clock above the dock the only thing present that seemed to go on as it ought for depravity or poverty or the habitual acquaintance with both had left a taint on all the animate matter hardly less unpleasant than the thick greasy scum on every inanimate object that frowned upon it noah looked eagerly about him for the dodger but although there were several women who would have done very well for that distinguished character's mother or sister and more than one man who might be supposed to bear a strong resemblance to his father nobody at all answering the description given him of mr dawkins was to be seen he waited in a state of much suspense and uncertainty until all the women being committed for trial went flaunting out and then was quickly relieved by the appearance of another prisoner who he felt at once could be no other than the object of his visit it was indeed mr dawkins who shuffling into the office with the big coat sleeves tucked up as usual his left hand in his pocket and his hat in his right hand preceded the jailer with a rolling gait altogether indescribable and taking his place in the dock requested in an audible voice to know what he was placed in that ere disgraceful situation for hold your tongue will you said the jailer i'm an englishman ain't i rejoined the dodger where are my privileges you get your privileges soon enough retorted the jailer and pepper with em we'll see what the secretary of state for the home affairs has got to say to the beaks if i don't replied mr dawkins now then what is this here business i shall thank the magistrates to dispose of this little ere affair and not to keep me while they read the paper for i've got an appointment with a gentleman in the city and as i am a man of my word and very punctual in business matters he'll go away if i ain't there to my time and then perhaps there won't be an action for damage against them as kept me away oh no certainly not at this point the dodger with a show of being very particular with a view to proceedings to be had thereafter desired the jailer to communicate the names of them two foils as was on the bench which so tickled the spectators that they laughed almost as heartily as master bates could have done if he had heard the request silence there cried the jailer what is this inquired one of the magistrates a pickpocketing case your worship has the boy ever been here before he ought to have been a many times replied the jailer he has been pretty well everywhere else i know him well your worship oh you know me do you cried the artful making a note of the statement very good that's a case of deformation of character anyway here there was another laugh and another cry of silence now then where are the witnesses said the clerk ah that's right said the dodger where are they i should like to see em this wish was immediately gratified for a policeman stepped forward who had seen the prisoner attempt the pocket of an unknown gentleman in a crowd and indeed taken a handkerchief therefrom which being a very old one he deliberately put back again after trying it on his own countenance 
For this reason he took the dodger into custody as soon as he could get near him, and the said dodger, being searched, had upon his person a silver snuff-box with the owner's name engraved upon the lid. This gentleman had been discovered on reference to the court guide, and being then and there present, swore that the snuff-box was his, and that he had missed it on the previous day, the moment he had disengaged himself from the crowd before referred to. He had also remarked a young gentleman in the throng, particularly active in making his way about, and that young gentleman was the prisoner before him. "'Have you anything to ask the witness, boy?' said the magistrate. "'I wouldn't abase myself by descending to hold no conversation with him,' replied the dodger. "'Have you anything to say at all?' "'Do you hear his worship asking if you've anything to say?' inquired the jailer, nudging the silent dodger with his elbow. "'I beg your pardon?' said the dodger, looking up with an air of abstraction. "'Did you redress yourself to me, my man?' "'I never see such a out-and-out wagabond, your worship.' observed the officer with a grin. "'Do you mean to say anything, you young shaver?' "'No,' replied the dodger. "'Not here, for this ain't the shop for justice. Besides which, my attorney is a-breakfasting this morning with the vice-president of the House of Commons. But I shall have something to say elsewhere, and so will he. And so will a very numerous and spectable circle of acquaintances, as'll make them beaks wish they'd never been born, or that they'd got their footmen to hang them up to their own app-pegs afore they let them come out this morning to try it upon me.' I'll there he's fully committed interposed the clerk take him away come on said the jailer oh ah i'll come on replied the dodger brushing his hat with the palm of his hand ah to the bench it's no use your looking frightened i won't show now mercy not a hapet worth of it you'll pay for this my fine fellers i wouldn't be you for something i wouldn't go free now if you was to fall down on your knees and ask me here carry me off to prison take me away with these last words the dodger suffered himself to be led off by the collar threatening till he got into the yard to make a parliamentary business of it and then grinning in the officer's face with great glee and self-approval having seen him locked up by himself in a little cell no one made the best of his way back to where he had left master bates after waiting here some time he was joined by that young gentleman who had prudently abstained from showing himself until he had looked carefully abroad from a snug retreat, and ascertained that his new friend had not been followed by any impertinent person. The two hastened back together, to bear to Mr. Fagin the animating news that the Dodger was doing full justice to his bringing up, and establishing for himself a glorious reputation. End of chapter 43 Chapter 44 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens the time arrives for Nancy to redeem her pledge to Rose Maylie. She fails. Adept as she was in all the arts of cunning and dissimulation, the girl Nancy could not wholly conceal the effect which the knowledge of the step she had taken wrought upon her mind. She remembered that both the crafty Jew and the brutal Sykes had confided to her schemes which had been hidden from all others, in the full confidence that she was trustworthy and beyond the reach of their suspicion vile as those schemes were desperate as were their originators and bitter as were her feelings towards fagin who had led her step by step deeper and deeper down into an abyss of crime and misery whence was no escape still there were times when even towards him she felt some relenting lest her disclosure should bring him within the iron grasp he had so long eluded and he should fall at last richly as he merited such a fate by her hand 
but these were the mere wanderings of a mind unable wholly to detach itself from old companions and associations, though unable to fix itself steadily on one object, and resolved not to be turned aside by any consideration. Her fears for Sykes would have been more powerful inducements to recoil while there was yet time, but she had stipulated that her secret should be rigidly kept. She had dropped no clue which could lead to his discovery. She had refused, even for his sake, a refuge from all the guilt and wretchedness that encompassed her. And what more could she do? She was resolved. Though all her mental struggles terminated in this conclusion, they forced themselves upon her again and again, and left their traces, too. She grew pale and thin even within a few days. At times she took no heed of what was passing before her, or no part in conversations where once she would have been the loudest. At other times she laughed without merriment, and was noisy without cause or meaning. At others, often within a moment afterwards, she sat silent and dejected, brooding with her head upon her hands, while the very effort by which she roused herself told more forcibly than even these indications that she was ill at ease and that her thoughts were occupied by matters very different and distant from those in the course of discussion by her companions. It was Sunday night, and the bell of the nearest church struck the hour. Sykes and the Jew were talking, but they paused to listen. The girl looked up from the low seat on which she crouched and listened too. Eleven. "'An hour this side of midnight,' said Sykes, raising the blind to look out and returning to his seat. "'Dark and heavy it is, too. A good night for business, this.' "'Ah,' replied Fagin, "'what a pity, Bill, my dear, that there's none quite ready to be done.' "'You're right for once,' replied Sykes gruffly. "'It's a pity, for I'm in the humour, too.' Fagin sighed and shook his head despondingly. "'We must make up for lost time when we got things into a good train. That's all I know,' said Sykes. "'That's the way to talk, my dear,' replied Fagin, venturing to pat him on the shoulder. "'It does me good to hear you.' "'Does you good, does it?' cried Sykes. "'Well, so be it,' <laughs> laughed Fagin, as if he were relieved even by this concession. "'You're like yourself tonight, Bill, quite like yourself.' "'I don't feel like myself when you lay that withered old claw on my shoulder, so take it away,' said Sykes, casting off the Jew's hand. "'It makes you nervous, Bill. Reminds you of being nabbed, does it?' said Fagin, determined not to be offended. "'Reminds me of being nabbed by the devil,' returned Sykes. "'There never was another man with such a face as yours, unless it was your father, and I suppose he is singeing his grizzled beard by this time.' unless you came straight from the old one without any father at all betwixt you, which I shouldn't wonder at a bit. Fagin offered no reply to this compliment, but pulling Sykes by the sleeve pointed his finger towards Nancy, who had taken advantage of the foregoing conversation to put on her bonnet, and was now leaving the room. Hello, cried Sykes. Nance, where's the girl going at this time of night? Not far. What answer's that? retorted Sykes. Do you hear me? "'I don't know where,' replied the girl. "'Then I do,' said Sykes, more in the spirit of obstinacy than because he had any real objection to the girl going where she liked. "'Nowhere. Sit down.' "'I'm not well. I told you that before,' rejoined the girl. "'I want a breath of air.' "'Put your head out of the window,' replied Sykes. "'There's not enough there,' said the girl. "'I want it in the street.' "'Then you won't have it,' replied Sykes with which assurance he rose, locked the door, took the key out, and pulling her bonnet from her head, 
flung it upon the top of an old press. There, said the robber, now stop quietly where you are, will you? It's not such a matter as a bonnet would keep me, said the girl, turning very pale. What do you mean, Bill? Do you know what you're doing? Now what I'm— Ah, said Sykes, turning to Fagin, she's out of her senses, you know. Oh, she daren't talk to me in that way. You'll drive me on to something desperate, muttered the girl, placing both her hands upon her breast, as though to keep down by force some violent outbreak. Let me go, will you, this minute, this instant. Now, said Sykes. Tell him to let me go, Fagin. He had better. It'll be better for him, dear me, cried Nancy, stamping her foot upon the ground. Hear you, repeated Sykes, turning round in his chair to confront her. Aye. And if I hear you for half a minute longer, the dog shall have such a grip on your throat as it'll tear some of that screaming voice out. What has come over you, you jade? What is it? Let me go, said the girl with great earnestness. Then, sitting herself down on the floor before the door, she said, Bill, let me go. You don't know what you're doing. You don't indeed. For only one hour. Do, do. Cut my limbs off one by one said Sykes, seizing her roughly by the arm. If I don't think the girl's stark raving mad, get up. Not till you let me go. Not till you let me go. Never, never, screamed the girl. Sykes looked on for a minute, waiting his opportunity, and suddenly, pinioning her hands, dragged her struggling and wrestling with him by the way into a small adjoining room, where he sat himself on a bench and, thrusting her into a chair, held her down by force. She struggled and implored by turns until twelve o'clock had struck and then, wearied and exhausted, ceased to contest the point any further. With a caution, backed by many oaths, to make no more efforts to go out that night, Sykes left her to recover at leisure, and rejoined Fagin. "'Phew!' said the housebreaker, wiping the perspiration from his face. "'What a precious strange gal that is!' "'You may say that, Bill,' replied Fagin thoughtfully. "'You may say that. What did she take it into her head to go out to-night for, do you think?' asked Sykes. Come, you should know her better than me. What does it mean? Obstinacy. Woman's obstinacy, I suppose, my dear. Well, I suppose it is, growled Sykes. I thought I had tamed her, but she's as bad as ever. Worse, said Fagin thoughtfully. I never knew her like this for such a little cause. Nor I, said Sykes. I think she's got a touch of that fever in her blood yet and it won't come out, say, Like enough. I'll let her a little blood without troubling the doctor if she's took that way again, said Sykes. Fagin nodded an expressive approval of this mode of treatment. She was hanging about me all day and all night too when I was stretched on my back, and you, like a black-hearted wolf as you are, kept yourself aloof, said Sykes. We was poor too all the time, and I think one way or other it's worried and fretted her. And that being shut up here as long has made her restless, eh? That's it, my dear, replied the Jew in a whisper. Hush! As he uttered these words, the girl herself appeared and resumed her former seat. Her eyes were swollen and red, and she rocked herself to and fro, tossed her head, and after a little time burst out laughing. Why, now she's on the other track, exclaimed Sykes, turning a look of excessive surprise on his companion. Fagin nodded to him to take no further notice just then, and in a few minutes the girl subsided into her accustomed demeanour. Whispering Sykes that there was no fear of her relapsing, Fagin took up his hat and bade him good night. 
He paused when he reached the room door, and, looking round, asked if somebody would light him down the dark stairs. "'Light him down,' said Sykes, who was filling his pipe. "'It's a pity he should break his neck himself and disappoint the sightseers. Show him a light.' Nancy followed the old man downstairs with a candle. When they reached the passage, he laid his finger on his lip, and, drawing close to the girl, said in a whisper, "'What is it, Nancy, dear?' "'What do you mean?' replied the girl in the same tone. "'The reason of all this,' replied Fagin, "'if he—he he pointed with his skinny forefinger up the stairs—is too hard with you. He's a brute, Nance, a brute beast. Why don't you—' "'Well,' said the girl, as Fagin paused, with his mouth almost touching her ear and his eyes looking into hers. "'No matter just now. We talk of this again. You have a friend in me, Nance, a staunch friend.' I have the means at hand, quiet and close, if you want revenge on those that treat you like a dog. Like a dog, worse than his dog, for he humours him sometimes. Come to me. I say, come to me. He is the mere hound of a day, but you know me of old, Nance. I know you well, replied the girl, without manifesting the least emotion. Good night. She shrank back as Fagin offered to lay his hand on hers but said good-night again in a steady voice, and answering his parting look with a nod of intelligence, closed the door between them. Fagin walked towards his home, intent upon the thoughts that were working within his brain. He had conceived the idea, not from what had just passed, though that had tended to confirm him, but slowly and by degrees, that Nancy, wearied of the housebreaker's brutality, had conceived an attachment for some new friend. Her altered manner, her repeated absences from home alone, her comparative indifference to the interests of the gang, for which she had once been so zealous, and added to these her desperate impatience to leave home that night at a particular hour, all favoured the supposition, and rendered it to him at least almost matter of certainty. The object of this new liking was not among his myrmidons. He would be a valuable acquisition with such an assistant as Nancy, and must, thus Fagin argued, be secured without delay. There was another, a darker object to be gained. Sykes knew too much, and his ruffian taunts had not galled Fagin the less because the wounds were hidden. The girl must know well that if she shook him off she could never be safe from his fury, and that it would be surely wreaked to the maiming of limbs, or perhaps the loss of life, on the object of her more recent fancy. With a little persuasion, thought Fagin, what more likely than that she would consent to poison him? Women have done such things and worse to secure the same object before now. There would be the dangerous villain, the man I hate, gone, another secured in his place, and my influence over the girl, with a knowledge of this crime to back it, unlimited. These things passed through the mind of Fagin during the short time he sat alone in the housebreaker's room, and with them uppermost in his thoughts he had taken the opportunity afterwards afforded him of sounding the girl in the broken hints he threw out at parting. There was no expression of surprise, no assumption of an inability to understand his meaning. The girl clearly comprehended it. Her glance at parting showed that. But perhaps she would recoil from a plot to take the life of Sykes, and that was one of the chief ends to be attained. Now, thought Fagin, as he crept homeward, can I increase my influence with her? What new power can I acquire? Such brains are fertile expedients. 
if without extracting a confession from herself he laid a watch discovered the object of her altered regard and threatened to reveal the whole history to sykes of whom she stood in no common fear unless she entered into his designs could he not secure her compliance i can said fagin almost aloud she durst not refuse me then not for her life not for her life i have it all the means are ready and shall be set to work i shall have you yet he cast back a dark look and a threatening motion of the hand towards the spot where he had left the bolder villain and went on his way busying his bony hands in the folds of his tattered garment which he wrenched tightly in his grasp as though there were a hated enemy crushed with every motion of his fingers End of chapter forty four chapter forty five of oliver twist by charles dickens noah claypole is employed by fagin on a secret mission the old man was up betimes next morning and waited impatiently for the appearance of his new associate who after a delay that seemed interminable at length presented himself and commenced a voracious assault on the breakfast bolter said fagin drawing up a chair and seating himself opposite morris bolter well here i am returned noah what's the matter don't you ask me to do anything till i've done eating that's a great fault in this place you never get time enough over your meals you can talk as you eat can't you said fagin cursing his dear young friend's greediness from the very bottom of his heart oh yes i can talk i go on better when i talk said noah cutting a monstrous slice of bread where's charlotte out said fagin i sent her out this morning with the other young woman because i wanted us to be alone now oh, said noah i wish you'd ordered her to make some buttered toast first well talk away you won't interrupt me there seemed indeed no great fear of anything interrupting him as he had evidently sat down with a determination to do a great deal of business you did very well yesterday my dear said fagin beautiful six shillings and ninepence halfpenny on the very first day the kitchen lay will be a fortune to you don't you forget to add three pint pots and a milk can said mr bolter no no my dear the pint pots were great strokes of genius but the milk can was a perfect masterpiece pretty well i think for a beginner remarked mr bolter complacently the pots i took off airy railings and the milk can was standing by itself outside the public house i thought it might get rusty with the rain or catch cold you know eh <laughs> fagin affected to laugh very heartily and mr bolter having had his laugh out took a series of large bites which finished his first hunk of bread and butter and assisted himself to a second i want you bolter said fagin leaning over the table to do a piece of work for me my dear that needs great care and caution i say rejoined bolter don't you go shoving me into danger or send me any more to your police offices that don't suit me that don't and so i tell you there's not the smallest danger in it not the very smallest said the jew it's only to dodge a woman an old woman demanded mr bolter a young one replied fagin i can do that pretty well i know said bolter i was a regular cunning sneak when i was at school what am i to dodge you for not to not to do anything but to tell me where she goes who she sees and if possible what she says to remember the street if it is a street or the house if it is a house and to bring back all the information you can what'll you give me 
asked Noah, setting down his cup and looking his employer eagerly in the face. "'If you do it well, a pound, my dear.' "'One pound,' said Fagin, wishing to interest him in the scent as much as possible. "'And that's what I never gave yet for any job of work where there wasn't valuable consideration to be gained.' "'Who is she?' inquired Noah. "'One of us.' "'Oh, Lord!' cried Noah, curling up his nose. "'You're doubtful of it, are you?' "'She has found out some new friends, my dear, and I must know who they are,' replied Fagin. "'I oh, see,' said Noah. "'Just to have the pleasure of knowing them, if they're respectable people, eh? <laughs> I'm your man.' "'I knew you would be,' cried Fagin, elated by the success of his proposal. "'Of course, of course,' replied Noah. "'Where is she? Where am I to wait for her? Where am I to go?' "'All that, my dear, you shall hear from me.' "'I'll point it out to you at the proper time,' said Fagin. "'You keep ready, and leave the rest to me.' That night, and the next, and the next again, the spy sat booted and equipped in his carter's dress, ready to turn out at a word from Fagin. Six nights passed, six long, weary nights, and on each Fagin came home with a disappointed face, and briefly intimated that it was not yet time. On the seventh he returned earlier, and with an exultation he could not conceal. It was Sunday. "'She goes abroad to-night,' said Fagin, "'and on the right errand, I'm sure, for she has been alone all day, and the man she is afraid of will not be back much before daybreak. Come with me, quick!' Noah started up without saying a word, for the Jew was in a state of such intense excitement that it infected him. They left the house stealthily, and hurrying through a labyrinth of streets, arrived at length before a public house which Noah recognised as the same in which he had slept on the night of his arrival in London. It was past eleven o'clock and the door was closed. It opened softly on its hinges as Fagin gave a low whistle. They entered without noise and the door was closed behind them. Scarcely venturing to whisper but substituting dumb show for words, Fagin and the young Jew who had admitted them pointed out the pane of glass to Noah and signed to him to climb up and observe the person in the adjoining room. "'Is that the woman?' he asked, scarcely above his breath. Fagin nodded yes. "'I can't see her face well,' whispered Noah. "'She's looking down, and the candle is behind her.' "'Stay there,' whispered Fagin. He signed to Barney, who withdrew. In an instant the lad entered the room adjoining, and under pretense of snuffing the candle, moved it in the required position and speaking to the girl caused her to raise her face. "'I see her now,' cried the spy. "'Plainly? I should know it among a thousand. He hastily descended as the room door opened and the girl came out. Fagin drew him behind a small partition which was curtained off, and they held their breaths as she passed within a few feet of their place of concealment, and emerged by the door at which they had entered. "'Pst!' cried the lad who held the door. Now. Noah exchanged a look with Fagin and darted out. "'To the left,' whispered the lad. "'Take the left hand and keep on the other side.' He did so, and by the light of the lamps saw the girl's retreating figure, already at some distance before him. He advanced as near as he considered prudent, and kept on the opposite side of the street, the better to observe her motions. She looked nervously round twice or thrice, and once stopped to let two men who were following close behind her pass on. She seemed to gather courage as she advanced, and to walk with a steadier and firmer step. The spy preserved the same relative distance between them, and followed, with his eye upon her. 
End of chapter 45 Chapter 46 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens The Appointment Kept The church clocks chimed three-quarters past eleven, as two figures emerged on London Bridge. One, which advanced with a swift and rapid step, was that of a woman who looked eagerly about her as though in quest of some expected object. The other figure was that of a man, who slunk along in the deepest shadow he could find, and at some distance accommodated his pace to hers, stopping when she stopped, and as she moved again creeping stealthily on, but never allowing himself in the ardour of his pursuit to gain upon her footsteps. Thus they crossed the bridge from the Middlesex to the Surrey shore, when the woman, apparently disappointed in her anxious scrutiny of the foot-passengers, turned back. The movement was sudden, but he who watched her was not thrown off his guard by it, for shrinking into one of the recesses which surmount the piers of the bridge, and leaning over the parapet to better conceal his figure, he suffered her to pass on the opposite pavement. When she was about the same distance in advance as she had been before, he slipped quietly down and followed her again. At nearly the centre of the bridge she stopped. The man stopped too. It was a very dark night. The day had been unfavourable, and at that hour and place there were few people stirring. Such as there were hurried quickly past, very possibly without seeing, but certainly without noticing, either the woman or the man who kept her in view. Their appearance was not calculated to attract the importunate regards of such of London's destitute population as chanced to take their way over the bridge that night in search of some cold arch or doorless hovel wherein to lay their heads. They stood there in silence, neither speaking nor spoken to by anyone who passed. A mist hung over the river, deepening the red glare of the fires that burnt on the small craft moored off the different wharfs, and rendering darker and more indistinct the murky buildings on the banks. The old smoke-stained storehouses on either side rose heavy and dull from the dense mass of roofs and gables, and frowned sternly upon water too black to reflect even their lumbering shapes. The tower of old St. Saviour's Church and the spire of St. Magnus, so long the giant warders of the ancient bridge, were visible in the gloom. But the forest of shipping below the bridge and the thickly scattered spires of churches above were nearly all hidden from sight. The girl had taken a few restless turns to and fro, closely watched meanwhile by our hidden observer, when the heavy bells of St. Paul's tolled for the death of another day. Midnight had come upon the crowded city. The palace, the night-cellar, the jail, the madhouse, the chambers of birth and death, of health and sickness, the rigid face of the corpse and the calm sleep of the child. Midnight was upon them all. The hour had not struck two minutes when a young lady, accompanied by a grey-haired gentleman, alighted from a hackney carriage within a short distance of the bridge, and, having dismissed the vehicle, walked straight towards it. They had scarcely set foot upon its pavement when the girl started and immediately made towards them. They walked onward, looking about them with the air of persons who entertained some very slight expectation, which had little chance of being realised, when they were suddenly joined by this new associate. They halted with an exclamation of surprise, but suppressed it immediately, for a man in the garments of a countryman came close up, brushed against them indeed, at that precise moment. "'Not here,' said Nancy hurriedly. "'I am afraid to speak to you here. Come away, out of the public road. Down the steps yonder.' 
As she uttered these words, and indicated with her hand the direction in which she wished him to proceed, the countryman looked round, and roughly asking what they took up the whole pavement for, passed on. The steps to which the girl had pointed were those which on the Surrey bank and on the same side of the bridge as St. Saviour's Church form a landing-stairs from the river. To this spot the man bearing the appearance of a countryman hastened unobserved, and after a moment's survey of the place he began to descend. These stairs are a part of the bridge. They consist of three flights. Just below the end of the second, going down, the stone wall on the left terminates in an ornamental pilaster, facing towards the Thames. At this point the lower steps widen, so that a person turning that angle of the wall is necessarily unseen by any others on the stairs who chance to be above him, if only a step. The countryman looked hastily round when he reached this point, and as there seemed no better place of concealment, and the tide being out there was plenty of room, he slipped aside with his back to the pilaster, and there waited, pretty certain that they would come no lower, and that even if he could not hear what was said, he could follow them again with safety. So tardily stole the time in this lonely place, and so eager was the spy to penetrate the motives of an interview so different from what he had been led to expect, that he more than once gave the matter up for lost, and persuaded himself either that they had stopped far above, or had resorted to some entirely different spot to hold their mysterious conversation. He was on the point of emerging from his hiding-place and regaining the road above, when he heard the sound of footsteps, and directly afterwards of voices almost close at his ear. He drew himself straight upright against the wall, and, scarcely breathing, listened attentively. "'This is far enough,' said a voice, which was evidently that of the gentleman. "'I will not suffer the young lady to go any farther.' Many people would have distrusted you too much to have come even so far, but you see I am willing to humour you." "'To humour me?' cried the voice of the girl whom he had followed. "'You're considerate indeed, sir. To humour me? Well, well, it's no matter.' "'Why, for what?' said the gentleman in a kinder tone. "'For what purpose can you have brought us to this strange place? Why not have let me speak to you above there where there is light, and there is something stirring instead of bringing us to this dark and dismal hole?' "'I told you before.' replied Nancy, that I was afraid to speak to you there. I don't know why it is, said the girl, shuddering, but I have such a fear and dread upon me to-night that I can hardly stand. A fear of what? asked the gentleman, who seemed to pity her. I scarcely know of what, replied the girl. I wish I did. Horrible thoughts of death, and shrouds with blood upon them, and a fear that has made me burn as if I was on fire, have been upon me all day. I was reading a book to-night, to while away the time and the same things came into the print. "'Imagination,' said the gentleman, soothing her. "'No imagination,' replied the girl in a hoarse voice. "'I'll swear I saw coffin written in every page of the book in large black letters. Aye, and they carried one close to me in the streets to-night.' "'There is nothing unusual in that,' said the gentleman. "'They have passed me often.' "'Real ones,' rejoined the girl. "'This was not.' There was something so uncommon in her manner that the flesh of the concealed listener crept as he heard the girl utter these words, and the blood chilled within him. He had never experienced a greater relief than in hearing the sweet voice of the young lady as she begged her to be calm, and not allow herself to become the prey of such fearful fancies. "'Speak to her kindly,' said the young lady to her companion. "'Poor creature! She seems to need it. Your haughty religious paper would have held their heads up to see me as I am to-night, and preached of flames and vengeance," cried the girl. "'Oh, dear lady, 
Why aren't those who claim to be God's own folks as gentle and as kind to us poor wretches as you, who, having youth and beauty, and all that they have lost, might be a little proud instead of so much humbler? Ah, said the gentleman, a Turk turns his face after washing it well to the east when he says his prayers. These good people, after giving their faces such a rub against the world as to take the smiles off, turn with no less regularity to the darkest side of heaven. Between the Mussulman and the Pharisee, commend me to the first. These words appeared to be addressed to the young lady, and were perhaps uttered with the view of affording Nancy time to recover herself. The gentleman, shortly afterwards, addressed himself to her. "'You were not here last Sunday night,' he said. "'I couldn't come,' replied Nancy. "'I was kept by force.' "'By whom?' "'In that I told the young lady of before.' "'You were not suspected of holding any communication with anybody on the subject which has brought us here to-night, I hope?' asked the old gentleman. "'No,' replied the girl, shaking her head. "'It's not very easy for me to leave him unless he knows why. I couldn't have seen the lady when I did, but that I gave him a drink of laudanum before I came away.' "'Did he awake before you returned?' inquired the gentleman. "'No, and neither he nor any of them suspect me.' "'Good,' said the gentleman. "'Now, listen to me.' "'I am ready,' replied the girl, as he paused for a moment. "'This young lady,' the gentleman began, "'has communicated to me, and to some other friends who can be safely trusted, "'what you told her nearly a fortnight since. "'I confessed to you that I had doubts at first "'whether you were to be implicitly relied upon, "'but now I firmly believe you are.' "'I am,' said the girl earnestly. "'I repeat that I firmly believe it.' To prove to you that I am disposed to trust you, I tell you without reserve that we propose to extort the secret, whatever it may be, from the fear of this man Monks. But if—if,' said the gentleman, "'he cannot be secured, or, if secured, cannot be acted upon as we wish, you must deliver up the Jew.' "'Fagin!' cried the girl, recoiling. "'That man must be delivered up by you,' said the gentleman. "'I will not do it. I will never do it,' replied the girl. Devil that he is, and worse than the devil as he has been to me, I will never do that. You will not, said the gentleman, who seemed fully prepared for this answer. Never, returned the girl. Tell me why. For one reason, rejoined the girl firmly, for one reason that the lady knows and will stand by me in, I know she will, for I have her promise. And for this other reason besides, that bad life as he has led, I have led a bad life too. There are many of us who have kept the same courses together and I'll not turn upon them who might, any of them, have turned upon me, but didn't, bad as they are." "'Then,' said the gentleman quickly, as if this had been the point he had been aiming to attain, "'put monks into my hands, and leave him to me to deal with.' "'What if he turns against the others?' "'I promise you that in that case, if the truth is forced from him, there the matter will rest. There must be circumstances in Oliver's little history which it would be painful to drag before the public eye, and if the truth is once elicited, they shall go scot-free.' "'And if it is not?' suggested the girl. "'Then,' pursued the gentleman, "'this Fagin shall not be brought to justice without your consent. In such a case I would show you reasons, I think, which would induce you to yield it.' "'Have I the lady's promise for that?' asked the girl. "'You have,' replied Rose, "'my true and faithful pledge.' "'Monks would never learn how you knew what you do,' said the girl, after a short pause. "'Never,' replied the gentleman. The intelligence would be so brought to bear upon him that he could never even guess. "'I have been a liar and among liars from a little child,' said the girl, after another interval of silence. "'But I will take your words.' 
After receiving an assurance from both that she might safely do so, she proceeded in a voice so low that it was often difficult for the listener to discover even the purport of what she said, to describe by name and situation the public-house whence she had been followed that night. From the manner in which she occasionally paused it appeared as if the gentleman were making some hasty notes of the information she communicated. When she had thoroughly explained the localities of the place, the best position from which to watch it without exciting observation, and the night and hour on which Monks was most in the habit of frequenting it, she seemed to consider for a few moments, for the purpose of recalling his features and appearances more forcibly to her recollection. "'He is tall,' said the girl, "'and a strongly made man, but not stout. He has a lurking walk, and as he walks constantly looks over his shoulder, first on one side and then on the other. Don't forget that for his eyes are sunk in his head so much deeper than any other man's that you might almost tell him by that alone. His face is dark, like his hair and eyes, and although he can't be more than six or eight and twenty, withered and haggard. His lips are often discoloured and disfigured with the marks of teeth, for he has desperate fits, and sometimes even bites his hands and covers them with wounds. "'Why did you start?' said the girl, stopping suddenly. The gentleman replied in a hurried manner that he was not conscious of having done so and begged her to proceed. "'Part of this,' said the girl, "'I've drawn out from the other people at the house I tell you of, for I've only seen him twice, and both times he was covered up in a large cloak. I think that's all I can give you to know him by. Stay, though,' she added, "'upon his throat, so eye that you can see a part of it below his neckerchief when he turns his face, there is—a broad red mark, like a burn or scald,' cried the gentleman. "'How's this?' said the girl. "'You know him?' The young lady uttered a cry of surprise and for a few moments they were so still that the listener could distinctly hear them breathe. "'I think so,' said the gentleman, breaking silence. "'I should, by your description. We shall see. Many people are singularly like each other. It may not be the same.' As he expressed himself to this effect with assumed carelessness, he took a step or two nearer the concealed spy, as the latter could tell from the distinctness with which he heard him mutter, "'It must be he.' "'Now,' he said, returning, so it seemed by the sound, to the spot where he had stood before. "'You have given us most valuable assistance, young woman, and I wish you to be the better for it. What can I do to serve you?' "'Nothing,' replied Nancy. "'You will not persist in saying that,' rejoined the gentleman, with a voice and emphasis of kindness, that might have touched a much harder and more obdurate heart. "'Think now. Tell me.' "'Nothing, sir,' rejoined the girl, weeping. "'You can do nothing to help me.' I am past all hope, indeed." "'You put yourself beyond its pale,' said the gentleman. "'The past has been a dreary waste to you, of youthful energies misspent, and such priceless treasures lavished as the Creator bestows but once and never grants again. But for the future you may hope. I do not say that it is in our power to offer you peace of heart and mind, for that must come as you seek it but a quiet asylum, either in England, or, if you fear to remain here, in some foreign country, is not only within the compass of our ability, but our most anxious wish to secure you. Before the dawn of morning, before this river wakes to the first glimpse of daylight, you should be placed as entirely beyond the reach of your former associates, and leave as utter an absence of all traces behind you, as if you were to disappear from the earth this moment. Come, I would not have you go back to exchange one word with any old companion or take one look at any old haunt, or breathe the very air which is pestilence and death to you. Quit them all, while there is time and opportunity." "'She will be persuaded now,' cried the young lady. "'She hesitates, I am sure.' "'I fear not, my dear,' said the gentleman. 
"'Now, sir, I do not,' replied the girl, after a short struggle. "'I am chained to my old life. I loathe and hate it now, but I cannot leave it. I must have gone too far to turn back. And yet I don't know, for if you had spoken to me so some time ago I should have laughed it off. But—' she said, looking hastily round, "'this fear comes over me again. I must go home.' "'Home?' repeated the young lady, with a great stress upon the word. "'Home, lady,' rejoined the girl, "'to such a home as I have raised for myself with the work of my own life. Let us part. I shall be watched or seen. Go, go. If I have done you any service, all I ask is that you leave me, and let me to go my way alone.' "'It is useless,' said the gentleman, with a sigh. "'We compromise her safety, perhaps, by staying here. We may have detained her longer than she expected already.' "'Yes, yes,' urged the girl, "'you have.' "'What,' cried the young lady, "'can be the end of this poor creature's life?' "'What?' repeated the girl. "'Look before you, lady. Look at the dark water. How many times do you read of such as I who spring into the tide, and leave no living thing to care for or bewail them? It may be years since, or it may be only months, but I shall come to that at last.' "'Do not speak thus, pray,' returned the young lady, sobbing. "'It will never reach your ears, dear lady, and God forbid such horrors should,' replied the girl. "'Good night. Good night.' The gentleman turned away. "'This purse,' cried the young lady, "'take it for my sake, that you may have some resource in an hour of need and trouble.' "'No,' replied the girl, "'I have not done this for money. Let me have that to think of. And yet give me something that you have worn. I should like to have something. No, no, not a ring.' your gloves or handkerchief, anything that I can keep as has belonged to you, sweet lady. There, bless you. God bless you. Good night. Good night. The violent agitation of the girl and the apprehension of some discovery which would subject her to ill-usage and violence seemed to determine the gentleman to leave her as she requested. The sound of retreating footsteps were audible, and the voices ceased. The two figures of the young lady and her companion soon afterwards appeared upon the bridge. They stopped at the summit of the stairs. "'Hark!' cried the young lady, listening. "'Did she call? I thought I heard her voice.' "'No, my love,' replied Mr. Brownlow, looking sadly back. "'She has not moved, and will not till we are gone.' Rose Maylie lingered, but the old gentleman drew her arm through his and led her, with gentle force, away. As they disappeared, the girl sunk down nearly at her full length upon one of the stone stairs, and vented the anguish of her heart in bitter tears. After a time she arose, and with feeble and tottering steps ascended to the street. The astonished listener remained motionless on his post for some minutes afterwards, and having ascertained with many cautious glances round him that he was again alone, crept slowly from his hiding-place and returned stealthily in the shade of the wall in the same manner as he had descended. Peeping out more than once when he reached the top, to make sure that he was unobserved, Noah Claypole darted away at his utmost speed, and made for the Jew's house as fast as his legs would carry him. End of chapter 46 Chapter 47 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens Fatal Consequences it was nearly two hours before daybreak, that time which in the autumn of the year may be truly called the dead of night, when the streets are silent and deserted, when even sounds appear to slumber, and profligacy and riot have staggered home to dream. 
It was at this still and silent hour that Fagin sat watching in his old lair, with face so distorted and pale, and eyes so red and bloodshot, that he looked less like a man than like some hideous phantom moist from the grave, and worried by an evil spirit. He sat crouching over a cold hearth, wrapped in an old torn coverlet, with his face turned towards a wasting candle that stood upon a table by his side. His right hand was raised to his lips, and as absorbed in thought he bit his long black nails, he disclosed among his toothless gums a few such fangs as should have been a dog's or a rat's. Stretched upon a mattress on the floor lay Noah Claypole fast asleep. Towards him the old man sometimes directed his eyes for an instant, and then brought them back again to the candle, which, with a long burnt wick drooping almost double, and hot grease falling down in clots upon the table, plainly showed that his thoughts were busy elsewhere. Indeed they were. Mortification at the overthrow of his notable scheme, hatred of the girl who had dared to palter with strangers, and utter distrust of the sincerity of her refusal to yield him up, bitter disappointment at the loss of his revenge on Sykes, the fear of detection and ruin and death, and a fierce and deadly rage kindled by all. These were the passionate considerations which, following close upon each other with rapid and ceaseless whirl, shot through the brain of Fagin, as every evil thought and blackest purpose lay working at his heart. He sat without changing his attitude in the least, or appearing to take the smallest heed of time, until his quick ear seemed to be attracted by a footstep in the street. "'At last!' he muttered, wiping his dry and fevered mouth. "'At last!' The bell rang gently as he spoke. He crept upstairs to the door, and presently returned, accompanied by a man muffled to the chin, who carried a bundle under one arm. Sitting down and throwing back his outer coat, the man displayed the burly frame of Sykes. "'There,' he said, laying the bundle on the table. "'Take care of that, and do the most you can with it. It's been trouble enough to get. I thought I should have been here three hours ago.' Fagin laid his hand upon the bundle, and locking it in a cupboard, sat down again without speaking. But he did not take his eyes off the robber for an instant during this action. And now that they sat over against each other face to face he looked fixedly at him, with his lips quivering so violently and his face so altered by the emotions which had mastered him, that the housebreaker involuntarily drew back his chair, and surveyed him with a look of real affright. "'What now?' cried Sykes. "'What do you look at a man so for?' Fagin raised his right hand and shook his trembling forefinger in the air, but his passion was so great that the power of speech was for the moment gone. "'Damn!' said Sykes, feeling in his breast with a look of alarm. "'He's gone mad. I must look to myself here.' "'No, no,' rejoined Fagin, finding his voice. "'It's not—you're not the person, Bill. I've no—no no fault to find with you.' "'Oh, you haven't, haven't you?' said Sykes, looking sternly at him and ostentatiously passing a pistol into a more convenient pocket. "'That's lucky, for one of us. Which one that is don't matter.' "'I've got that to tell you, Bill,' said Fagin, drawing his chair nearer. "'We'll make ye worse than me.' "'Aye,' returned the robber with an incredulous air. "'Tell away. Look sharp, or Nance will think I'm lost.' "'Lost?' cried Fagin. "'She has pretty well settled that in her own mind already.' Sykes looked with an aspect of great perplexity into the Jew's face, and reading no satisfactory explanation of the riddle there, clenched his collar in his huge hand and shook him soundly. "'Speak, will you?' he said. "'Or if you don't, it shall be for want of breath. Open your mouth and say what you've got to say in plain words.' 
Out with it, you thundering old cur. Out with it. Suppose that lad that's lying there, began Fagin. Sykes turned round to where Noah was sleeping, as if he had not previously observed him. Well, he said, resuming his former position. Suppose that lad, pursued Fagin, was to peach, to blow upon us all, first seeking out the right folks for the purpose, and then having a meeting with them in the street to paint our likenesses, describe every mark that they might know us by, and the crib where we might be most easily taken. Suppose he was to do all this, and besides to blow upon a plant we've all been in, more or less of his own fancy, not grabbed, trapped, tried, earwigged by the person, and brought to it on bread and water, but of his own fancy, to please his own taste, stealing out at nights to find those most interested against us, and peaching to them. Do you hear me? cried the Jew, his eyes flashing with rage. Suppose he did all this. What then? What then? replied Sykes with a tremendous oath. If he was left alive till I came, I'd grind his skull under the heel of my boot into as many grains as there are hairs upon his head. What have I did it? cried Fagin, almost in a yell. I that know so much, and could hang so many besides myself. I don't know, replied Sykes, clenching his teeth and turning white at the mere suggestion. I'd do something in the jail that'd get me put in irons, and if I was tried along with you, I'd fall upon you with them in the open court and beat your brains out before the people. I should have such strength, muttered the robber, poising his brawny arm, that I could smash your head as if a loaded wagon had gone over it. You would? Would I? said the housebreaker. Try me. If it was Charlie, or the Dodger, or Betts, or— I don't care who, replied Sykes impatiently. Whoever it was, I'd serve him the same. Fagin looked hard at the robber, and, motioning him to be silent, stooped over the bed upon the floor and shook the sleeper to rouse him. Sykes leant forward in his chair, looking on with his hands upon his knees, as if wondering much what all this questioning and preparation was to end in. "'Bolter! Bolter! Poor lad!' said Fagin, looking up with an expression of devilish anticipation, and speaking slowly and with marked emphasis. "'He's tired. Tired with watching for her so long. Watching for her, Bill.' "'What do you mean?' asked Sykes, drawing back. Fagin made no answer but bending over the sleeper again, hauled him into a sitting posture. When his assumed name had been repeated several times, Noah rubbed his eyes, and, giving a heavy yawn, looked sleepily about him. "'Tell me that again, once again, just for him to hear,' said the Jew, pointing to Sykes as he spoke. "'Tell you what?' asked the sleepy Noah, shaking himself pettishly. "'That about Nancy,' said Fagin, clutching Sykes by the wrist as if to prevent his leaving the house before he had heard enough. You followed her? Yes. To London Bridge? Yes. Where she met two people? So she did. A gentleman and a lady that she had gone to of her own accord before, who asked her to give up all her pals and monks first, which she did, and to describe them, which she did, and to tell her what house it was that we meet at and go to, which she did, and where it could be best watched from, which she did, and what time the people went there, which she did. She did all this. She told it all, every word, without a threat, without a murmur. She did, did she not? cried Fagin, half mad with fury. All right, replied Noah, scratching his head. That's just what it was. What did they say about last Sunday? About last Sunday? replied Noah, considering. Why, I told you that before. 
again tell it again cried fagin tightening his grip on sykes and brandishing his other hand aloft as the foam flew from his lips they asked her said noah who as he grew more wakeful seemed to have a dawning perception who sykes was they asked her why she didn't come last sunday as she promised she said she couldn't why why tell him that because she was forcibly kept it down by bill the man she had told him of before replied noah what more of him cried fagin what more of the man she had told them of before tell him that tell him that why that she couldn't very easily get out of doors unless he knew where she was going to said noah and so the first time she went to see the lady she <laughs> it made me laugh when she said it that it did she gave him a drink of loadin'em hell's fire cried sykes breaking fiercely from the jew let me go flinging the old man from him he rushed from the room and darted wild and furiously up the stairs bill bill cried fagin following him hastily a word only a word the word would not have been exchanged but that the housebreaker was unable to open the door on which he was expending fruitless oaths and violence when the jew came panting up let me out said sykes don't speak to me it's not safe let me out i say hear me speak a word rejoined fagin laying his hand upon the lock you won't be well replied the robber you won't be too violent bill the day was breaking and there was light enough for the men to see each other's faces they exchanged one brief glance there was a fire in the eyes of both which could not be mistaken i mean said fagin showing that he felt all disguise was now useless not too violent for safety be crafty bill and not too bold sykes made no reply but pulling open the door of which fagin had turned the lock dashed into the silent streets without one pause or moment's consideration without once turning his head to the right or left without raising his eyes to the sky or lowering them to the ground but looking straight before him with savage resolution his teeth so tightly compressed that the strained jaw seemed starting through his skin the robber held on his headlong course nor muttered a word nor relaxed a muscle until he reached his own door he opened it softly with a key strode lightly up the stairs and entering his own room double-locked the door and lifting a heavy table against it drew back the curtain of the bed the girl was lying half-dressed upon it he had roused her from her sleep for she raised herself with a hurried and startled look get up said the man is it you bill said the girl with an expression of pleasure at his return it is was the reply get up there was a candle burning but the man hastily drew it from the candlestick and hurled it under the grate seeing the faint light of early day without the girl rose to undraw the curtain let it be said sykes thrusting his hand before her there's enough light for what i've got to do bill said the girl in a low voice of alarm why do you look like that at me the robber sat regarding her for a few seconds with dilated nostrils and a heaving breast and then grasping her by the head and throat dragged her into the middle of the room and looking once towards the door placed his heavy hand upon her mouth bill bill gasped the girl wrestling with the strength of mortal fear i i won't scream or cry not once hear me speak to me tell me what i have done you know you she-devil returned the robber suppressing his breath you were watched to-night every word you said was heard then spare my life for the love of heaven as i spared yours rejoined the girl clinging to him bill dear bill you cannot have the art to kill me 
Oh, think of all I have given up only this one night for you. You shall have time to think, and save yourself this crime. I will not loose my hold. You cannot throw me off. Bill, Bill, for dear God's sake, for your own, for mine, stop before you spill my blood. I have been true to you. Upon my guilty soul I have. The man struggled violently to release his arms, but those of the girl were clasped round his, and tear her as he would, he could not tear them away. "'Bill!' cried the girl, striving to lay her head upon his breast. "'The gentleman and that dear lady, they told me to-night of a home in some foreign country where I could end my days in solitude and peace. Let me see them again, and beg them on my knees, to show the same mercy and goodness to you.' and let us both leave this dreadful place and far apart leave better lives and forget how we have lived except in prayers and never see each other no more it's never too late to repent they told me so i feel it now but we must have time a little little time the housebreaker freed one arm and grasped his pistol the certainty of immediate detection if he fired flashed across his mind even in the midst of his fury and he beat it twice with all the force he could summon upon the upturned face that almost touched his own. She staggered and fell, nearly blinded with the blood that rained down from a deep gash in her forehead, but raising herself with difficulty on her knees, drew from her bosom a white handkerchief, Rose Maley's own, and holding it up in her folded hands, as high towards heaven as her feeble strength would allow, breathed one prayer for mercy to her Maker. It was a ghastly figure to look upon, the murderer staggering backwards to the wall and shutting out the sight with his hand, seized a heavy club and struck her down. End of chapter 47